The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum, a new fortnightly show with author Richard Seymour. Today I spoke with Richard about his new book, The Disenchanted Earth, Reflections on Eco-Socialism and Barbarism. We talked about why the Marxist left for a very long time, gave relatively little attention to the ecological crisis, and about Richard's own turn towards environmental writing. We also talked about the process of the Earth's disenchantment, referenced in the title of the book, in the 16th and 17th centuries, and how it made possible capital's hyper-exploitation of the natural environment. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Automation and the Future of Work by Aaron Bananav. Silicon Valley titans, politicians, techno-futurists, and social critics have united in arguing that we are living on the cusp of an era of rapid technological automation, heralding the end of work as we know it. But does the much-discussed rise of the robots really explain the jobs crisis that awaits us on the other side of the coronavirus? In Automation and the Future of Work, Aaron Bananav uncovers the structural economic trends that will shape our working lives far into the future. Described by Mike Davis as a powerful and persuasive explanation of why capitalism can't create jobs or generate incomes for a majority of humanity, the book is out now in paperback from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. If you would like to hear the extended 75-minute long version of today's episode of Interregnum, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also be able to access extended versions of other PTO episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So in the introduction to the book, you describe the essays as a chronicle of your ecological awakening. And you write about the aversion that you had to ecological politics when you were younger. Could you explain where you think that aversion came from and, and why, for a very long time, ecological concerns seem to be of relatively minor interest to the socialist tradition as a whole, with the exception, of course, of those working in the eco-socialist tradition? I think, on the one hand, there was a pronounced anthropocentrism in the socialist tradition. And I remember being quite irate with people who focused on such issues as animal rights and things like that when there were wars to be resisting. And the planet seemed to be obviously important, but at some level a fairly abstract concern happening elsewhere. That was wrong, of course, and it was based upon 
wholly erroneous predicates. But, uh, you know, we're talking about a time when the uh, seriousness of the environmental crisis was not as obvious as it has become in recent years. So that's a part of it. But yeah, I think in general, there's also an underlying productivism to historical materialism. The idea, the aspiration of superabundance created by the most advanced forces of production, the most advanced technologies, to enable us to live in a harmonious way by creating so much abundance of certain key goods that we can treat them as if they're free, so we don't have to fight over them so much. There is built into that an aversion, a resistance to points of view, perspectives, which appear to suggest that human beings consume too much. You know, this is one of the more problematic lines coming from ecology, the idea that there's an overpopulation or that human beings are greedy and selfish and so on, which is tendentially reactionary. So there were certainly problems with some forms of ecologism, but there was also a blind spot within most iterations of the socialist tradition. Uh, Historically, we'd been used to the idea of championing technologies and heavy industrialization as a progressive advance. And now we come to this impasse where it appears that we have to have a much more critical relationship with some of the ingredients, the predicates from which a socialist society was supposed to be built. And we now find that, for example, we're going to have to use a lot less energy, even if we find ways of transferring to 100% renewables, that would still require, in order that we stop the escalation of the climate crisis and just the climate crisis alone, it would still require that we reduce substantially our use of energy and energy efficiency can only get us so far in that respect. And it means that we have to challenge the idea of growth. And then when you add in other aspects of the ecological crisis, such as the erosion of soil fertility, such as mass extinction, such as the problems caused by mass agriculture and agribusiness, not just, say, chopping down forest, deforestation, etc., but things like the encroachment on wildlife reservoirs where we risk unleashing dangerous germs uh, and causing pandemics. You know, there's a whole range of problems which require that we restrict the human species impact. And it's difficult to talk about it in these terms because obviously the human species doesn't have a single type of impact. There are societies where there's relatively little ecological impact. And then, of course, there's fairly highly developed, overdeveloped, you might say, capitalist societies, which uh, extract the most impact. So nonetheless, we still find that we can't say to people, you know, in the future, there's going to be such an abundance of many basic things that the causes of social conflict of division, of crime, and the muck of ages that comes with it, the racism, you know, the uh, competitive hostility to migrants, the sexism, etc., that will start to be washed away as well, because we'll have achieved a kind of society where many of these problems can be much more easily negotiated within a kind of direct democracy. It's not going to be so simple, and we have to find other ways of thinking about abundance. 
So there are a number of reasons why I was averse, but I think it's fair to say that at the core of it was basically ignorance. I knew some of the problem, I had some inkling of what was going on, and of course, like every good socialist, I related this to the contradictions of capitalist development, and sort of broadly thought that in a socialist society we would be able to manage this problem much more efficaciously, but not really understanding very well the underlying ecological predicates, particularly with regard to the web of life, and the whole system of energetics, which is the foundation of every civilization. Do you think, I mean, um, you know, I think I certainly had some of the same aversion. And, and I think, you know, certainly in, in the 1990s, in youth culture, there was a huge hostility towards anything that could be sort of coded as, as, as hippie. And I think that was, you know, definitely part of it. And I think, although I wasn't part of the, the Trotskyist tradition myself, my, my impression of it was that it had a certain kind of austere aesthetic to it, which again was very contrary to the people that you saw in in the more ecological crowd. Absolutely. I mean, the distrust of the hippie aesthetic had some sort of basis, because when you engaged with that wing of ecologism, frequently, although it might start with um, some fairly harmless sounding predicates, you know, it might start with a, a kind of romantic notion that the tree is alive and I am a tree and when someone cuts into a tree they're cutting into me, etc. Which uh, sounds delightful, but when you look at people like Dave Foreman of Earth First who would articulate some of these ideas, you would find that he was profoundly racist about, for example, Ethiopian starving. He would say that was just nature's course. And you would find a lot of that kind of green nationalism, verging on eco-fascism, sort of buried within the ecological movement, you would find quite mainstream within the environmentalist movement, Malthusian predicates, which would criticize third world countries for overpopulating as if that is where the major impact on the planet is coming from. So there was some basis for this. But yeah, also, I think, frankly, there is a value put certainly within the Trotskyist movement, but I think more generally within the militant left on a kind of hard headedness on the idea that we are scientific socialists, not utopian socialists, not romantics. And we are interested in using the, let's say, the muck of the world, the awful things, the bad things, the things that are inherently unromantic to create the better world. So we think of ourselves as being more worldly and more realistic and more going with the grain of historical development than those who attach themselves to values, which let's say, may be difficult to ground. Like, for example, I've become very interested in the transcendentalist movement of the 19th century United States, which was influenced by Kant and influenced by a version of Christianity and influenced by, let's say, the Romantics, Romantic poets and so on. Well, okay, this is quite a different tradition to that of materialism, and particularly the tradition of historical materialism. So there are very different predicates so there's a clash at all levels, and that is expressed aesthetically and culturally, and it's experienced in that way in the first instance, you know. So there's an element of that. Yeah, and, and so that historic division, although it wasn't total, that, that division between the socialist movement and the green movement, you would see that as, as a situation where there was a lot of blame to go around on all sides rather than uh, situating the blame primarily uh, on one side or the other. 
Oh, look, I mean, I think it's always better to start with your own blame. <laughs> There's a lot that uh, I can fault the environmentalist movement for. I mean, it depends, you know, what parts of the environmentalist movement we're talking about. But basically, Marxists should have been a lot faster to respond to this. And it is a reflection of the historical emphases of historical materialism that it wasn't able to do so. And, you know, in, in our salvage essay, mm -hmm. uh, which was published in book form, The Tragedy of the Worker, we talked a lot about the tragedy of Bolshevism. You know, the fact that buried in there were some interesting and novel ecological ideas. There were some good conservationist practices, some of the best ecological thinking came out of that era. You know, Vernadsky was not a Bolshevik, but uh, certainly he wrote some of his um, most important work during the Bolshevik era. And that's true of a lot of other really important ecological or earth scientists. So there was that possibility, but then there was also the industrialist aesthetic and ethic. There was the idea of paving over the Siberian forests and turning them into great cities of concrete and steel and building the fraternity of man, as they still said in those days, on that. And there was also... And, and I suppose rapid industrialization was the most visible achievement of the communist bloc and obviously held huge appeal in, in the global south for a time. Oh, yeah. But the, I mean, that was based largely on a misperception because, of course, the, you know, Stalin in particular was attracted to giganticism, you know, these enormous projects which would show the glory of the regime, but which were often not very effective and often based upon slave labor, the destruction of the environment, the destruction of indigenous communities, particularly in the Soviet Arctic. But basically there was, during the war communist era, you know, during the Civil War, there was the roots there of Stakhanovism, you know, the idea that uh, we're going to get ourselves out of this, this famine, this plague, this situation of permanent shortage, which is starving the cities, destroying the working class, which is supposed to be the basis of liberation, self-determination. We're going to get out of this by electrifying the country. We're going to get out of this by building coal-fired power stations. We're going to get out of this by massively ratcheting up our productive capacities to compete effectively with uh, the capitalist nations. And so that by the um, 1960s, you have a situation where the Soviet Union appears to be doing quite well. I mean, the statistics aren't always reliable, but their growth rates were quite high. And there was a, a moment where people, you know, in in the capitalist countries were looking at Russia and thinking they're doing something right. And maybe there is a certain glamour in this, there's something to be learned from it. Yes. I mean, this is when a literature of, of supposed convergence between the, the capitalist bloc and, and the communist world starts to develop it as well, right? Oh, yeah. And Khrushchev said, uh, you know, within 10 years, we're going to be considerably richer and better off than you. That socialist society will be reached in which our products, you know, our cars, our food, our fashion will be much better than what you have in the capitalist West. They were extremely confident about it. Of course, that was hubris. And, you know, it didn't reflect the realities of their sort of productive system, which was very good at producing, you know, big, bulky objects or producing basic goods that you knew people needed and wanted, but not very good at producing things which, let's say, the market is a little bit better at producing. 
you know, anticipating desires, allocating goods. You know, the status system that they had was extremely bad at that. So, but you can see the glamour there and you can see why it appealed to decolonizing countries which didn't want to go down the, let's say, the path of modernization championed by Kennedy era intellectuals like Walt Whitman Rostow, which went through authoritarian military regimes supported by the United States and intensive capitalist development. You can understand why they didn't want that, and they thought the Soviet Union was something other than it actually was. Do you think those strands of, of more ecologically inclined thought that there was in parts of early Marxism and early Bolshevism, do you think that stuff was pretty marginal, or, or do you think it was marginalised by history, by the fact of those strands being defeated by the productivism of, of, of the Soviet Union and, and similar regimes? Gosh, that's a really good question. And the answer is, I just don't know. I mean, one thing I've learned from doing interviews like this is not to bullshit. Um, I think my impression is that it's a bit of both, okay? Just based on what uh, what I've been able to read, there are elements within Marxism, within historical materialism, that would be favourable to the development of a scientifically serious ecological project. You know, the fact that Marx took the sciences so seriously, the fact that he was a naturalistic materialist, the fact that he was interested in energetics, interested in evolution, Obviously, Engels uh, devoted much more direct attention to this stuff and, you know, his work. Maybe this is an aspect of uh, the situation we're describing. His sort of dialectic of nature came under a lot of suspicion for some good reasons, actually. But it's only recently that some people like, um, I think, Khan Kangal has done some work sort of disinterring what Engels was trying to do, what that project was about. But, you know, the idea of a dialectic of nature was regarded as idealist, um, and I think probably for good reasons. But it did reflect an attempt to engage with and, you know, unify Marxism with a view of the natural sciences. But I think, you know, basically in its underlying predicates, Marxism, partly because it starts off as an analysis of capitalism, a critique of political economy, working with, let's say, the symptomatic logic, the gaps, the absences in political economy, the fact that they can't account for profit or surplus value, and that they need a concept of surplus value to explain what's going on. And the fact that the concepts of political economy in the 19th century were strongly influenced by and influencing of the emerging science of energetics and the relationship of energetics to work. And the idea that emerged within this was essentially that there's an abundance of energy. There's no shortage of energy. It's just a question of how to appropriately marshal resources, how to effectively use labor forces and connect them to the energy sources and systems in the world. And that, I think, is possibly a predicate submerged within historical materialism for all its attention to the contradictions of the capitalist system. I think there's the idea that if we could liberate the productive forces from these contradictions, we could create a much more dynamic society. It's rare that I'll sort of praise something that uh, Slavoj Žižek has said, but one of the points he made is that without the contradictions, you don't have the dynamism, you don't have the growth. So that was... 
let's say that there there are a number of ways in which we could approach the reasons for the marginalization of this ecological potential within historical materialism. But whatever the reasons, we are now at a stage where obviously people like John Bellamy Foster and others are having to unearth this tradition and find ways to put it to work. And if it turns out that Marxism isn't an adequate framework, let's say for a kind of energetic economics, then we would have to seriously acknowledge that this is just one of the limits of Marxism. You know, Marxism can't do everything. It's not supposed to be a theory of everything. And we might have to supplement it and correlate it with other traditions of thinking. And I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I partly ask that because I wonder if there is a tendency amongst some people to want to say, well, well, actually, you know, Marx had this covered, you know, this this guy was, you know, was a was an ecologist. And, and yeah, there's no need to supplement Marxism with anything from the outside, as you as you say. Going back to your shift towards being more concerned with the ecological crisis. So you describe that shift as not stemming simply from some kind of intellectual or analytical shift in your thinking, but rather from what you describe as a, as a moment of grief that you experienced on a Christmas day in, in Trent Park in North London. Can you describe that moment and its significance for you? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think it would be reductive to put it all down to, you know, a walk in Trent Park on Christmas Day that's uh, abnormally warm for winter and feeling a bit clammy rather than frosty. It just so happened that probably there were a number of other experiences, and certainly there were conversations going on within the Salvage Collective about the severity of the ecological crisis. But I just remember that moment as being when it hit me emotionally, when I would be walking in what we call nature, and it would abruptly occur to me that what we are used to with regard to our experience of nature, what we have taken for granted, will in the future not be there, that there will be far less of what we call nature available to us, and thinking about how much this matters. There was a story told in David Attenborough's documentary about the plague year and the effects that the decline in transport and flights and uh, industry and so on had on the natural environment. And one of them was that uh, in a part of India, which um, you know is, uh, let's say, 200 miles away from the Himalayas, the peaks of the Himalayas abruptly became visible because the smog and pollution went away. It occurred to me, if you have something like that, which you can't really put a price on, or take another example, solar radiation management, where you pump sulfate particles into the sky in order to deflect um, solar radiation and cool the planet. One of the effects of that, reportedly, is that it would tend to make the sky white. Well, Okay, so no more blue sky. Is it romantic? Is it purely nostalgic to say that would be a catastrophic loss? You know, we're not just talking about the loss of, let's say, the instruments of production, which uh, are embedded in nature, like biodiversity. We're not just talking about the loss of soil fertility. We're not just talking about the calamities of natural disasters. But in a very everyday way, we're talking about the impoverishment, the immiseration of experience, of practical experience of the world. That describes some of the complex web of thoughts and feelings that occurred to me on that particular day. But I don't want to, I use that as a pedagogical example, as a way of saying, look, 
you don't always learn because somebody gives you a lecture, the sermon that you were waiting for. Sometimes you learn because something shifts emotionally and it's opaque. It's it's difficult to explain what that shift is. And it's difficult to say what, let's say, unconscious thought formations subtend that shift or what has to be given up in order to be able to approach this uh, very difficult, traumatizing knowledge. It's usually taken for granted that the way most people feel about the destruction of the natural world is fairly straightforward, that we feel sadness or despair and, and that we reproach ourselves and others, or, or, or in some instances, even, even capitalism itself, for the deterioration of the biosphere. But taking up Freud's famous writings on, on mourning and melancholia, you suggest that our feelings towards nature and the forces that are, that are destroying it are in fact far more ambivalent than that and that we can feel both love and hatred towards the, uh, towards the natural world. Could you talk about that ambivalence and, and what the implications might be for climate activism? Yeah, it's important to say that um, from a psychoanalytic perspective, ambivalence is not the same thing as, let's say, ambiguity. Yes, yeah. where, it's, it's, sh- you know, its meaning has shifted, hasn't it? It seems that's how it's sort of used in, in an everyday sense, it seems now. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, if you say that I feel ambivalent about this person, you might just be saying that I have some slightly mixed feelings. No, ambivalence is where you have quite polar opposite feelings about this person. And usually when you love someone, you also hate them because, you know, if you love someone, they're capable, they have a lot of power over you. They're capable of letting you down. They're capable of betraying you. They're capable of uh, not providing what you need. How could you not hate that? And also, you know, the things that you might love them for, such as, you know, you might find that they're they're very capable people, they might be very charismatic. Well, you might despise them for that as well, because uh, you wish you had those characteristics yourself. Okay, talking about it in terms of the natural world and ecological processes and our relationship to the planet and, you know, the fantasies, the screens of fantasy that um, sort of organize that. It's obvious that for those of us who, you know, prefer city life, nature has charms, but it also has a lot of inconveniences, a lot of terrors. You know, like, I much prefer, let's say, air conditioning and a comfortable bedroom to camping among insects. I'm not very fond of insects or spiders. And, you know, nature is also disease. It's also cold. It's also wildfire. Um, nature is... I suppose we also associate it with political conservatism as well. Yeah, I mean, well, look, historically, there's been the idea of nature as uh, something that is given, whether by God or by other means, and which uh, severely restricts the possibilities for human society, but which also can be linked in a kind of right-wing romantic imaginary to the polluting effects of mutant biological forms, particularly the wrong types of human being. Let's say in 19th century Germany, there was the idea that Jews despoil nature. Or in some of the writings, of the, which, by the way, I mean, some of the writings of the radical right from the early 20th century are extremely passionate about the destruction of the natural world, about the elimination of wild beasts, about extinctions, etc. But that's sort of linked to an anti-modernist, anti-rationalist thrust. So there's all that to take into account. But I think in a basic way, on a day-to-day basis, you know, you might go for a walk in the countryside and enjoy yourself, but um, you wouldn't necessarily want to sleep in the fields. 
you might go and uh, you know enjoy watching animals but you wouldn't want to live with the lions you know and you know the, when you look at wildlife documentaries and their appeal and i'm thinking particularly of david attenborough's uh, sort of documentaries mm, uh, blue, blue planet, planet yeah. frozen planet and so on i immensely enjoy these things but what you find buried in there apart from all the ideology that attenborough brings into it where there's a lot of anthropomorphizing you know there's difficult females who are impossible to please and then there's uh jilted lovers yeah and men protecting their property and all of that sort of stuff but basically this constant oscillation between sublime beauty something that's absolutely ravishing and irreplaceable and utter terror you know, the, the same sort of coral reef that uh, glows with multicolor beauty during the day becomes a death zone at night. You know, there's constant attacks by sharks. There's, you know, there's predators coming in, tearing their prey to pieces. And if anybody has any sort of grounding in, uh, let's say, Darwinian evolution, one of the things we know is that death and extinction is one of the ways in which we have come up with this enormous diversity of um, sometimes incredibly beautiful species that we have. So ambivalence would be perfectly natural. I mean, one of the points that I make, I'm, I'm drawing here on sort of 80s extinction science. There was um, some work by, I think, uh, Louis Alvarez and his colleagues, which suggested that not only are mass extinctions, you know, these catastrophes that uh, 19th century scientists said couldn't happen, not only do these happen, not only is it grounded in the fossil evidence, but that it seems to be quite a regular phenomenon. There may be some form of mass extinction roughly every 26 million years. Well, okay, so the Earth chokes off almost all life within it <laughs> on a regular basis. To romanticize that would be absurd. And obviously, we do tend to do that. But every time you idealize something, there is an underlying covert kind of passionate hatred. So I think ambivalence is na is natural. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you give an example of, in terms of you know, sort of counterposed to the idea of the of the rugged individualist is the idea of of the Earth Mother and, and humanity's dependence on nature. But you suggest that the Earth Mother is is a rather less appealing idea than it may at first seem. Although perhaps it might be quite appropriate, given that actually that you know we often feel a lot of ambivalence towards uh, our mothers, and, and mothers feel ambivalence towards their children. Absolutely, but yeah, I mean the metaphor obviously is imperfect because the Earth doesn't have any particular intentions towards us. It just does what it does. But um, we can nonetheless have a phantasmatic relationship to it. And we can start with, uh, with this formulation. When we are born, the mother is our environment. First of all, our immediate physical environment, and then also our emotional environment. And, uh, you know, Obviously, it's not all about mothers, and there's a danger of a kind of cod psychoanalysis where we reduce everything to mothers and uh, you know whether they're good enough and so on. But yeah, the mother blaming and the mother idealizing, which is part of the same move. But um, you know, I think that if you think about your experience of your environment in that way as being so strongly related to motherhood and that form of nurture and care, then it makes perfect sense that you would take that ambivalence because the mother frustrates me. She's not there when I need her. 
or she sometimes is mean to me. You know, there's Melanie Klein used to talk about the, you know, the, the good mother and the bad mother, the kind of splitting between the ideal mother who's always there and the bad mother who sometimes is angry with you and so on. Well, okay, maybe it makes sense to see that the unconscious thoughts formed in that context, the unconscious fantasy formations would then play out in our relationship to the natural world. And I wonder if we could then say that the glee with which some people sort of take in the idea of chopping down trees and flattening surfaces and building new car parks and so on uh, doesn't have a certain, let's say, infantile narcissism built into it. There are all sorts of speculations that we could engage in here, but I think it is fair to say that we don't just have a simple attitude to the natural environment. Yeah, I mean, do you think it would be good for people working in the in the area of ecological politics to to try and have a greater greater awareness of, of the extent to which the urban or even kind of quite sort of antiseptic spaces can have a certain kind of appeal to people, and that we're not all the time very keen on a sort of a rustic aesthetic, which I think, you know, for some environmentalists, even, you know, even living in the city, that's the kind of aesthetic they may perhaps be drawn to. But that kind of ignores the way that actually, yeah, we often like situations and spaces and, and buildings which are very contrary to, to that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why we have spent so much trying to humanise the natural environment. I think that personally, I kind of want a bit of both. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I, 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 I kind of think that that's probably where most people are, and that uh, sort of is wired into the ambivalence, you know. So I like a comfortable flat, but I also want plenty of flowers and plants in it, and I want the birds to show up outside, and so on. So you know, it's how do we control our relationship to the natural environment? So we've put a lot of emphasis into regulating that relationship by obviously for good reasons, with walls and windows and heating and air conditioning so that we don't share any particles of air with the outside world that we don't want to. But, uh, you know, that's one very narrow way of regulating that metabolic relationship. There are other ways, you know, in terms of the food that we eat. No one is going to go and hunt down a mammal and dig the teeth into the, to the throat and uh, drink the blood and eat the raw flesh. We're not into that anymore. We have discovered fire and we've uh, built technologies for processing meats and cooking and so on. That's all fine up to a point, but obviously we now just need to think about you know the fact that not only is the natural environment potentially threatening to us, but that we can, through our metabolic relationship, through our labor, you know, augment those threats, generate new threats. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's aesthetically speaking, I don't think there's anything politically at stake in whether you prefer to um, have a comfortable IKEA flat or whether you prefer to live in, you know, a, a kind of rustic home in the countryside or a mud hut or whatever. I suppose I mean that, you know, I think sometimes aspects of consumerism can seem alien or, or hard to fathom if, if those are practices you, you're not particularly engaged in. And if you are someone who doesn't consume very much and, and is attracted to that more kind of, you know, supposedly simple lifestyle and that perhaps it's, it's worth thinking about what is attractive about that stuff and not to think, oh, this is, you know, it's just people responding to advertising or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it would be worth thinking about it the other way around, too, because there is this rewilding ethic and aesthetic that's going around. 
George Monbiot is very fond of this, but he's far from the only one. And it's not just the idea that we need to, uh, let's say, roll back some of the human influence over the natural world and let some more, much more uh, areas of um, the world be taken over by the spontaneous processes of life, you know, conserved, basically. But also there's the idea that humans need to be relieved a little bit from the burdens of civilization. They need to be allowed to rewild. And uh, I think that that is a complex ideological formation with some things about it that are quite attractive, obviously. I think that the burdens of civilization are quite severe for most people. I think that the restrictions on access to an unplanned, undesigned part of the world are classed and racialized. You know, you can think about the ways in which, let's say, black nature writing has been completely ignored until recently within the canon. You can think about the ways in which, you know, in the 20th century, the class experience of black life in the United States shifted from a kind of largely rural kind of experience where, you know, there were relations of some form of servitude or domination on, you know, farms and plantations. Mm, in the South. Particularly in the South. And then the shift to massive urbanization, but then where these new urban environments are polluted, dumped on, toxic, you know, where black people are particularly denied access to the natural environment and so on. So I think that the way that civilization is organized is quite uh, privative for many millions of people. And so the fantasy of a return to nature, of rewilding, obviously speaks to some kind of yearning, some kind of gap. And it would be interesting to rather than dismiss it as, you know, middle class romanticism or, you know, fluffy, nonconformist kind of dissenting radicalism of the English variety, to work with it, to see maybe to try a reparative reading. The title of the book is The Disenchanted Earth, and you refer to the work of Theodore Adorno and, and Max Horkheimer in describing the disenchantment of the earth as part of what you call a gigantic civilizational rupture as the 16th century turned into the 17th century, um, obviously the, the era of the Enlightenment. And you go on to describe how this rupture brought both the scientific revolution with all of its beneficial consequences in terms of human health and longevity, but also new forms of oppression and exploitation. What separates the enchanted earth of the earlier period and, and the disenchanted earth of the later period? Because presumably this is not straightforwardly just a story of the decline of religiosity, since one would hardly describe the 16th and 17th centuries as, as being irreligious. No, I think you um, you don't really have disenchantment. You can just have a choice of different types of enchantment. A disenchanted earth presumably is one in which we have driven out all of the, let's say, non-mechanistic, non-material forms of influence in the world. And I think that that doesn't really hold. I think that in practice, what you get is the revival of or the appearance of different types of 
enchantment in the form of cod spiritualisms, in the form of neo-religiosity, new millenarian religions and so on, various utopian forms of thinking, the spiritualization of ecological thinking, etc., etc. So that's one thing I want to say about that. But with regard to the transition I'm talking about there, drawing on, as you say, Carolyn Merchant and others, I'm talking about the transition, obviously the scientific revolution, which I mean, we have to be careful about these constructs. I mean, nobody at the time thought that they were conducting a scientific revolution. The transition to the capitalist mode of production and the ways in which that reorganized the colonial system, the ways in which it was implicated in the Atlantic slave trade and the ratcheting up of global systems of labor exploitation, which powered the sort of development of capitalism and made, you know, a small country in the northwest of Europe extremely powerful globally. You know, and you can think about the dramatic shifts in metabolism that took place. You know, slave labor was part of it, but let's not pretend that the exploitation of the working classes in, let's say, England, which were not racialized, were treated significantly better. You know, if you read David Brian Davis, he's, he describes the condition of the working class at this time as being you know, obviously they were not slaves, they had political freedom, but their treatment uh, as workers was appalling, and the degree of exploitation was really quite severe. And you suggest they were treated as if they were, in fact, uh, as was also the case uh, with women and, and people in the colonies, they were treated as if they were part of nature, and if they're part of nature, they're therefore uh, exploitable, and it's fine to exploit them. Yeah, I think that that was one of the conceptual moves that was undertaken. Although I think Jason W. Moore would make the point that the, one of the ways in which labor is separated from nature is that you have to wage labor, you know, you have to remunerate labor power. And so therefore you have to acknowledge it within the screen of capital. Whereas you can take certain other forms of labor, like slave labor, like women's domestic labor, and of course, like the free gifts of nature, you can treat those as resources that you steal from, that you just take for granted as part of the, your productive mix. So anyway, you get this uh, transition to this new energetic system, and then you get the emergence of fossil fuels, and that enables a new kind of labor system entirely. Okay, so within this context, the earth is supposedly disenchanted, but throughout the entirety of human civilization, as far as we know, there have always been myths about the planet and about the natural environment. Of course, not every society has had a concept of a planet. You know, it, this is, uh, you know, something we have to take into account, but certainly about the natural environment. And there's a whole fecund area of what's called geomythology, where essentially you look back through the myths that have persisted through indigenous civilizations and have been transmitted for thousands of years, and you find that there is evidence. I don't know how good this evidence is. In some cases, it's more convincing than others, but you find evidence for the relationship between these myths and actual ecological events that took place. Let's say the myth of the flood or something like that, you know, so that, um, you know, there's always been a, a mythic relationship and a mythic processing of the human relationship with the natural environment. And I think that that's fine, you know, because myth is, it's not just some silly fairy tale. It is a way of structuring and organizing experience. It's a way of drawing attention to certain aspects of the world in a non-literal, figurative way and of drawing attention to aspects of the world that are not reducible to 
cognition that are not reducible to intellection. And I think that that's uh, valid too. I would also say there's a need for us to engage with religiosity in this context, even if we're not religious, even if we don't believe in God, you know, and obviously I I leave that entirely open. There has been, you know, an extremely reductive form of materialism dominating the natural sciences for a long, long time. And the result is that it tends to produce a reflex of a kind of shallow spiritualism, you know, in terms of the Gaia myth and so on. As uh, I think the um, American theologian David Bentley Hart, who is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and he writes, uh, you know, he's written a number of combative books, and one of them is The Experience of God, which is um, an attack on the new atheists and their misapprehension of uh, of God and so on, and the idea of God. And one of the points that he makes is that essentially the position that there is nothing in the natural environment, nothing in our environment, nothing in the world, the cosmos, that is, let's say, not reducible to a mechanical and material universe that is apprehensible by the human sense, you know, the framework of human senses, is a faith position. I'm sure this is not a new thought, but one of the points he makes is that essentially, look, either you've got to say that there is some sort of inherently rational structure to the world, which means that it is knowable to human beings in a particular way. Or you've got to say that uh, the human sensory apparatus, it just happens to be what evolved in response to various evolutionary pressures, to various aspects of the world and the cosmos that were presented to us and that represented a particular kind of challenge. In which case, there's no good reason for us to think that what we can grasp of the world is anything like the entirety of it. In other words, there's a need for a kind of humility there. So either you're taking a a faith position or you're taking an agnostic position. I think that that's a reasonable starting point for beginning to engage with, for example, the various types of, let's say, indigenous cosmovisions that are involved in defending, let's say, ecological resources, rivers, etc., from pollution and uh, deterioration, for approaching various religious world religions and their declarations about the natural environment, and problematic as they may be. And, uh, you know, basically for engaging with this on a level that isn't reducible to, you know, giving the right lecture about the science or, you know, basically being an I fucking love science leftist. (laughs) Yeah. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.